ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, dramatic scenes in Port Moresby, with the underpayment of public servants sparking protests, looting and fires. Also, the inflation rate has fallen slightly, but are we going to notice it at the supermarket checkout? And Donald Trump's lawyers trying to convince a court that US presidents should be exempt from criminal prosecution. I think it's a far-fetched claim. They would be saying basically, okay, Joe Biden, you have a green light to commit whatever crimes you want while in office and he can do whatever he wants with impunity. That just doesn't make any sense. First tonight to the dramatic events unfolding in Papua New Guinea's capital, Port Moresby. The Prime Minister's office is under siege by protesters, outraged by the underpayment of public servants. They say their pay has been docked by more than $100. Fires have been lit and there are reports of looting too. The ABC's PNG correspondent, Tim Swanston, is in the centre of it all and I spoke to him a short time ago. Tim, where exactly are you and what's happening at the moment? Afternoon, Sam. Well, we're in one of the main parliamentary buildings, which is where the Prime Minister generally works out of. He called a press conference this afternoon, but after the press conference, quite a large crowd ended up gathering here just outside the office, demanding that the Prime Minister come out. And as I speak, it's unsafe for us to leave the building at this stage. There's several hundred demonstrators outside and they've set fire to the guardhouse as well. So there's a lot of anger and frustration over this issue. Of course, there are many public servants who've been caught up in this issue, but of course, you know, many other opportunists here in Port Moresby that uh, are using the situation to air other grievances as well. So it is a fairly, uh, you know, evolving security situation here in Port Moresby. At the moment, it's unsafe for us to leave the building, but hoping in the coming hours things should start to clear out. It's sounding like a pretty frightening situation. How are you and, and the others in the building holding up? Look, all okay. I mean, of course, everyone's very security conscious here in Port Moresby, especially the journalists. Um, So uh, everyone, of course, is feeling fine. It's ultimately a matter now of waiting for police and defence to negotiate um, with those that are outside uh, in the crowd. But of course, like I said, there's there's some very serious frustration over, over this pay issue. And as far as you know, Tim, are the protests spreading elsewhere in Port Moresby? Well, yeah, I mean, we're we're seeing quite considerable looting and and fires uh, across WhatsApp. Uh, There's lots of videos being shared. I mean, I can see out uh, several fires right now. I can see uh, one of them over the main shopping centres as well here in uh, near Waigani here, which is the centre of power effectively in, in Port Moresby. Uh, I guess it's quite important that the, the demonstrations this morning were very civil and were very peaceful. It was largely led by police and defence staff uh, over the fact that they've received out quite a, they've missed out on quite a considerable amount in their pay packet. Um, but it's just uh, this afternoon where things uh, have taken a turn for the worst. And ultimately, the, the political situation sort of can't be ignored from it all. Uh, there's a basically a uh, grace period from a vote of no confidence for the Prime Minister, which ends next month. 
So uh, there is a lot of political heat in Port Moresby as well at the moment. Uh, the Prime Minister could face a leadership test next month as well. So sort of adding this is this the fuel to the fire and, and ultimately this pay issue seems to have really accelerated the grievances of many people here in Port Moresby. Yes, can you explain for us how the, this pay dispute has really triggered this unrest today? Mm, well, ultimately, I mean, uh, when, when many uh, public servants woke up this morning, they realised that they were about half their pay packet short, so some 300 kina or so, which is about 120 Australian dollars. And, of course, bearing in mind, you know, low wages in, in Papua New Guinea, that's a very considerable amount in the pay packet, a very considerable hit. Uh, so uh, there was there were demonstrations earlier in the day. Many thought that it was a surprise or a sudden tax hike or so for the year. Uh, we then later got clarification from the Internal Revenue Commission that ultimately this was a payroll glitch or a payroll issue. So the Prime Minister later clarified this afternoon that he, he apologised to those who, who had, had their pay uh, certainly deducted. And he said that ultimately it was Department of Finance staff hadn't updated the payroll software to reflect the tax-free threshold where many of these public servants fall fall under. But ultimately, you know, there is, there is enough frustration, essentially, like I said, almost the accelerant here uh, for people to be ultimately demanding that their pay packets be restored immediately rather than in a fortnight, as the government have just promised this afternoon. And is it only the public servants who've been underpaid who are protesting or are there more people involved? No, certainly there's much more people involved. I mean, ultimately, it did start with public servants this morning and those are the ones demonstrating at Parliament House. But just by the videos that I've seen, it appears that, it, that, that this anger and frustration has spread to many people beyond public servants. Uh, and that's, of course, a pretty common story here in Port Moresby, but uh, it does appear that... Uh, there are many people who are voicing their frustration uh, out on the street today. So uh, with any luck, uh, the security situation will clear in the, in the coming hours and, uh, and, and things will start to restore a little bit more to normal. Um, but as I said, it, it does seem that, you know, and, and, and for police as well, it's an interesting position. You know, they were, of course, some of the ones who were, who were, who were vocal this morning. But of course, now they're in the situation where they're having to try and establish, you know, law and order in, in many suburbs across Port Moresby as well. So uh, we'll see how this plays out over the afternoon into the evening. Tim, take care there and, and thanks very much for speaking to us. You're welcome. That's the ABC's PNG correspondent, Tim Swanston, who's trapped in parliamentary offices in Port Moresby. Well, here in Australia, the Prime Minister has visited Victoria and Queensland today as communities in both states recover from devastating floods. Starting the day in Cairns, Anthony Albanese announced a $24 million tourism recovery package and later in Victoria, he flagged more support for affected Victorians. This report from Luke Siddham-Dundon. Oh, well, I was just hoping that it wouldn't come inside, you know, inside the house. I wouldn't have liked that. 84-year-old Rochester resident Lorraine Wilson has seen a lot in her time. So when this week's flood warnings came through, she didn't take any chances. Well, I've been here for 60 years, so I don't particularly want to leave here. My son rang up and asked me, did I want to uh, leave? And we were hoping that it wouldn't be that high that had come through the house. I just looked her straight in the eye and I said, you're coming to stay with us. And there was a look of defiance in her face, but she said yes. 
Lee Wilson is a former local councillor in Rochester in northern Victoria who knows all too well the devastation flooding can cause. For the second time in 15 months, his mum's been forced to live with him as floodwaters threaten her home. Only last time, she says it was much worse. I didn't realise that it'd be so bad. Sort of come very quickly. We couldn't get the car out because it was running in under the door of the car. So we knew it was a bit late. So we just packed our things and we walked through flood water. We were wet to the waist. It took Lorraine Wilson days to be sure of how bad the damage was. We did have half a dozen chooks. Of course, they went down in the water and when their feathers get wet, they can't do a thing. They all drown. The water ruined her home, forcing her to sleep in a caravan for the past year. I've never been in a caravan before. Never lived in one. I've stayed overnight. It took me a little while because it was very confined, especially shower and that sort of thing. But, you know, I've I've got used to it now. You just got to do what you have to do, I think. Lee Wilson says there are hundreds of homes damaged in the 2022 floods that are still unoccupied as families try to rebuild their lives. He now chairs the Community Recovery Committee established after the last disaster. Today, he's been surveying the damage around town from this latest flood. The emotions run high. There's the overall relief that it wasn't as bad as was being predicted, but then they're just dealing with the stress of, you know, they only went through this other flood 15 months ago and they're still carrying the emotional baggage from that. In good news for Rochester residents, those forced to evacuate are now being allowed back to their homes. The State Emergency Service Chief Officer Tim Weebush says authorities are assessing the damage. As floodwaters have now started to recede, we can actually get into those areas. The SES says moderate flooding is now expected in Shepparton, Kyala and Marupna on Friday. The flooding is high on the Prime Minister's agenda. Anthony Albanese jetting between affected states, Queensland and Victoria today. In Melbourne, he announced more support for communities hit by the floods. We've signed off on a commitment to provide further support to Victorians. Support in terms of the emergency and hardship payments being made to individuals and families, but also support for local councils who are doing the work on the ground. The Prime Minister has been in Queensland too, where residents across the far north and southeast are battling to rebuild. In Woodjul Woodjul in the far north, more than 200 locals are still waiting to return to their badly damaged community. But the army is now going in to help. The mop-up is also continuing in the Mariba Shire that stretches west of Cairns. Peter Franks is the council's CEO. We've had over 80 houses damaged to some extent, four or five that have been totally destroyed, probably 25 which have been severely impacted. So people have lost everything. There's tens of millions of dollars on offer from the state and federal governments for the affected areas in Queensland, including money for tourism and other businesses. Tourism Tropical North Queensland CEO Mark Olson has welcomed the money. We've missed our peak season. For many businesses, cash is king. So for us, the support package announced today is a lifesaver. Peter Franks has welcomed the help too, but points out with so much loss, the damage bill is going to be huge and he's bracing for a years-long recovery. There's damage to council infrastructure, roads and water treatment plants and things, which is literally going to take years 
you know, I'd say if we finish by the end of next year, we'll be lucky. It's going to take us a couple of years to get back to normal. And to make matters worse, a monsoon trough is expected to develop and dump more heavy rain across some of the worst-hit parts of the region. Luke Sidham Dundon and Stephanie Smale with that story. Staying with weather events now and European scientists have declared 2023 was the world's hottest year on record. The European Union's Copernicus Climate Change Service examined global temperature records going back to 1850 and it concluded that on average in 2023 the planet was 1.48 degrees Celsius warmer than in the 19th century when humans began burning fossil fuels on an industrial scale. For more on the findings, I spoke to Dr Simon Bradshaw, the Research Director at the Climate Council. Dr Bradshaw, what have the EU scientists looked at in coming to this conclusion that the globe has had its hottest year on record? This would have involved thousands of data points from all around the world, and it's shown that 2023 was the hottest year on record by a considerable margin, coming in at just shy of 1.5 degrees above the pre-industrial level. And of course, that was accompanied by an extraordinary run of extreme weather events, severe fire seasons, very high temperatures and flooding across the Northern Hemisphere summer. And it's a painful reminder that we are living through the age of climate consequences and need to act much faster. What are some of the most notable climate events of the last year that the scientists will have looked at? We saw some terrifying fire seasons in Canada, but also in large parts of Asia and in southern Europe. A string of deadly heat waves across much of the Northern Hemisphere. We, of course, have had our own run of very severe weather down here in Australia in recent months. Other standouts from last year that have really set off the alarm bells is incredibly high sea surface temperatures an alarming decline in sea ice down in the Antarctic. Some of this has really alarmed scientists. We're seeing changes unfold faster than expected, and it shows that every choice now matters, and we must do everything we can to limit future warming. Some places, though, as you pointed out, recorded very cold temperatures last year, and just recently we've seen Scandinavia uh, recording very cold temperatures. So what do you say to people who say, oh, hang on, you know, the planet's getting hotter, you say, but we're also having these very cold weather events. By increasing the planet's temperature through the burning of coal, oil and gas, trapping more heat in the Earth's system, we're essentially putting our weather on steroids. So we're seeing wilder swings between hot and dry, back to wet and stormy. And of course, the cost of that really is measured in lives lost and livelihoods ruined. And we've seen many Australian communities have a very challenging summer so far. There's an awful lot we can still do to limit future harms, but it means tackling the problem at its source, getting our emissions down as fast as possible. Dr Bradshaw, you mentioned that 1.5 degree Celsius target, which of course countries agreed uh, in the Paris 2015 agreement to try and prevent global warming exceeding Mm. that 1.5 degrees Celsius. From what we're seeing in this study, how close do you think we are getting to going past that 1.5 degrees? We're getting perilously close to that limit. And what this latest climate update from Copernicus Climate Change Service shows us is just how dangerous things become as we approach that limit. The planet is now much hotter, the climate much more dangerous than the relatively cool and stable climate that human societies developed in shows we have to do everything we can to avoid future warming. Every fraction of a degree of avoided warming matters. 
there's a strong chance that next year will be the first year where the global average temperature is above 1.5 degrees. That doesn't mean we've sailed through that Paris temperature goal, which is based on a longer-term average, but it definitely shows just how urgent things are, just how important it is we accelerate that move beyond fossil fuels, that we update our national environment laws to prevent the opening up of new coal and gas projects, that we're bringing in strong fuel efficiency standards to reduce the emissions of our transport, that we're doing all these sensible, practical things to bring our emissions down, set ourselves up for a prosperous, clean energy future. Dr Simon Bradshaw from the Climate Council. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ahead, we'll take a look at what COVID-19 might have in store for us this year. If you've been struggling with the cost of living, then the latest inflation figures may come as a bit of a relief. The data out today is better than economists expected, with the inflation rate falling to its lowest level in nearly two years. It's 4.3% over the year to November, down from 4.9% a month earlier. But what does this mean for our food, housing and electricity bills? Isabel Masali takes a look. As people around the country talk about the cost of essential items, Perth man Stephen Fargo admits he doesn't know the price of fresh bread. When prices started to rise, he became a pensioner. And he now mostly shops in the discount section. And if I trim away any discoloured parts, which usually aren't very extensive, it's perfectly good and it's perfectly delicious. And the same with bread. I like to buy French sticks because they're easy to convert to breadcrumbs as leftovers. And French sticks have... um, they get stale quickly, so they're marked down quickly. I usually have a perennial supply of baguettes to buy at one or two dollars off the price of, you know, four to six dollars, and that's a good that's a good deal too. For the millions of Australians closely watching their bills, today's inflation data looks like a good sign. Treasurer Jim Chalmers welcomes the news of inflation slowing to four point three percent over the year to November. Economists had generally expected that number to be slightly higher. We know that people are under pressure. Uh, We know that inflation is higher than we would like it to be. But these numbers are welcome. They are encouraging. They show that we are making progress, but there's still progress to be made. We're making progress in this fight against inflation, but the fight against inflation is not over yet. Nikki Hutley is an independent economist. She says the most important thing from today's figures is it shows the Reserve Bank's policy of raising interest rates is working. The most important number is what we call the trimmed mean. That's the one the Reserve Bank looks at. And that was 4.6%, so a little bit higher. But the good news is it's a lot lower than it was last month or the month before at 5.3 and 5.4. It's coming down and it's coming down in, you know, in good measure. So what's a normal level of inflation and when could we expect that? Mm. So normal inflation, or rather what the Reserve would call target inflation, is 2 to 3%. So even though this number is, is good in the low fours, we're still a fair way out of the target band where it needs to be. It's probably not going to get there until quite late um, this year, but it is coming down. So what areas of the household budget are seeing the most relief? 
Well, you should be seeing some of the things at the supermarket, particularly fresh fruit and vegetable, even meat and seafood are lower. You're definitely seeing discounting going on if you're wanting to buy a new outfit. And if you want to, you know, freshen up the house with a few new cushions or curtains, now is definitely the time to be doing it because with sales on those prices have actually been been falling. And even holidays, um, although they were up a little bit in November because of obviously more people are booking in November, overall they're, they're definitely the prices are coming much lower there. They're still going up but at a much slower rate than they were before. Nikki Hutley adds petrol has come down too, though she warns those prices can jump around. As for the categories to watch out for... The biggest rises still are in the areas of um, electricity, and that would be a lot higher if we didn't have the government rebate in place. Um, we've also insurance is one of the, the biggest ones. Of course, um, rent and house prices still very strong. Um, housing overall is up, you know, nearly 7%. So um, unfortunately, we're not catching much of a break um, in that category. Turning to interest rates, Nikki Hartley says the data suggests we may have seen the last rise for this cycle though it may remain at this level for quite a period of time. Grocery prices may also change because of a federal review. The government today announced it will examine the relationship between supermarkets and suppliers. Elizabeth Jackson believes it's long overdue. She's an Associate Professor of Supply Chain Management and Logistics at Curtin University. There's a lot of um, producers that are very confused about why they are getting such low prices for their world class. And I'm talking, we, we enjoy in Australia amongst the world's best food. And they are terribly confused about why, um, why prices are so low against a background of our two main supermarkets um, in Australia, of course, those being Coles and Woolworths, who in the middle of last year, at the end of the financial year, both announced profits of over a billion dollars each. And she says customers deserve to have transparency over their grocery cost. Isabel Masali reporting. There's been a spike in COVID-19 cases in Australia's eastern states, with authorities blaming a new fast-moving variant known as JN1. Hundreds of people are in hospital with the virus in Victoria and Queensland, and cases are on the rise in New South Wales. But beyond this current wave, what could COVID-19 have in store for us in 2024? Stephanie Smale has more. JN1 is an offshoot of the Omicron COVID-19 variant and it's been spreading fast in other parts of the world too. It's the latest in a long line of mutations since the pandemic hit, but so far this one isn't making most people seriously ill. Infectious disease expert Professor Robert Boy from the University of Sydney says JN1's behaviour could be an indication of what's to come. Generally, the virus is mutating towards being less severe, but that's not a given. It is possible for it to become nasty again, less likely than becoming less severe, but we just don't know for absolutely certain. What is really important right now is that people who are becoming unwell uh, and they're vulnerable get tested early. And if you get treated within two or three days of falling ill, there are antivirals that can greatly improve your outcome. And so is JN1 likely to be part of the Australian COVID landscape for a while now or will will it be replaced pretty soon? <laughs> JN1 is peaking this month. Um, we're pretty sure about that. It's been surging for a few months already. It is curious in that some people uh, ex- experiments are showing 
that it uh, evades immunity. Others suggest that it binds with our human receptor much better. There's contradictory evidence from research in the literature from really good scientists across the world. So we just don't know exactly what it's going to do, but it's going to be around and peaking probably this month. Is it likely to be the case in 2024 that we will keep seeing these peaks and troughs? Is there any way to forecast what the pattern will be? We've had two years now and about, you know, five or six waves of subvariants. The new ones appear to be evading the immune response. And it could be that vaccine, instead of being 90% effective against hospitalisation, recent vaccination may only be 70% or so effective. So we do need to continue to pay attention, much as uh, COVID has become a real bore for most of us. Associate Professor Linda Selvey is from the University of Queensland School of Public Health. This is her take on what COVID-19 could deliver this year. Well, without a a crystal ball, it's impossible to know. But what coronavirus is showing us is that it is mutating at fairly regular frequencies and some of those mutations have successfully been able to evade our previous immune response. It would look likely to me that that would continue to occur. At this stage, it looks like JN1 isn't making most people very sick. Mm -hmm. Is it likely other variants that pop their head up will follow those same lines, that they won't be as severe? Well, that seems to be the trend. It's difficult to know, though, because if we remember the original virus, um, those early mutations were more severe than the original virus. But it does seem to be the trend now that it's getting less. So as long as people keep their vaccines up to date, um, one would hope and expect that the severity would at least not get any worse. And of course, there's the big question. Will COVID-19 ever go away completely? I suspect not, simply because we know other coronaviruses can cause the common cold and they continually mutate. I think it's probably more likely that the same thing will happen with SARS-CoV-2. Of course, we don't know. Linda Selvey there from UQ, ending that report from Stephanie Smale. Should a former American president be immune from prosecution for crimes committed while he was in office? That's the question being considered by a federal appeals court in Washington, D.C. Donald Trump's lawyers are arguing he can't be prosecuted for trying to overturn the 2020 election result and his federal indictment should be dismissed. But the three judges hearing his appeal are questioning whether absolute presidential immunity is lawful. Neil Whitehead has more. Donald Trump swapped trail for trial on Tuesday, leaving his campaign for the Republican presidential nomination to appear at a federal appeals court hearing. He faces federal charges that he plotted to overturn the results of the 2020 election, but his lawyers argue he should be immune from prosecution because he was in the White House at the time. It's a very sad thing that's happened with this whole situation. Uh, When they talk about... uh threat to democracy. That's your real threat to democracy. And I feel that as a president, you have to have immunity. Very simple. His lawyers contend that only a president who's been convicted for impeachment by Congress should be allowed to face criminal prosecution. And while Trump was impeached by the House of Representatives, he was never convicted by the Senate. His attorney, John Sawyer, claims that without presidential immunity, a string of other presidents might be charged for the actions they took while in office. To authorize the prosecution of a president for his official acts would open a Pandora's box 
from which this nation may never recover. But the panel of three judges grilled him about the implications of lifelong presidential immunity. Florence Pan asked whether it meant a president who sold pardons or ordered the assassination of a political rival was immune from prosecution. Could a president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? He would have to be and would speedily be, you know, uh, uh, impeached and convicted before the criminal what prosecution. What if he weren't? There would be no criminal prosecution, no criminal liability for that? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so your answer is, is no. Is, my answer is qualified, yes, there's a political... The immunity defence has already been rejected by a US district court judge who ruled in December that having served as president doesn't entitle one to a lifelong get-out-of-jail-free pass. Brian Cauld is a law professor at Michigan State University and says if the appeals court ruled in Trump's favour, it would give other presidents licence to act with impunity. We've never confronted this issue before. We've never had to. But we have considered immunity in two other contexts. One is civil immunity. When presidents leave office, they can't be sued civilly for anything official that they did in office. The second issue that hasn't been litigated, but it's been discussed a lot, is whether sitting presidents, while they're in office, are immune from the criminal process. And that's not settled. But one thing that both sides typically have conceded when they're talking about that is they say, well, there's no question that you can prosecute the president after he's left office. The only question is what happens while he's still in office. And so Trump is trying to take that one step farther and say, if the president does it, it's not illegal. And that's just, it doesn't make any sense at any level. Mm. What kind of precedent would that set if the appeals court ruled in his, his favour then? Well, it would set a terrible precedent and the, the court realises that and they're asking questions like, so you're saying the president could order order the military to murder his uh, enemies because he's the commander in chief, so that's an official action. Uh, I think it's a far-fetched claim and I would be shocked if any court adopted the view that he's going for here. They would be saying basically, okay, Joe Biden, you have a green light to commit whatever crimes you want while in office, and this doesn't make any sense. The criminal trial for the federal election fraud case is scheduled for the 4th of March, though it could be delayed by the appeals process. It's one of four criminal trials and 91 felony charges that Donald Trump is facing. Neil Whitehead reporting. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. You'll find all our interviews and reports on the PM webpage. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night.